Highways Voices, the podcast of Highways News, your one-stop destination for all the news about the highways and transport technology industries, and our must-read daily newsletter. Welcome again to Highways Voices, where this week we talk about active travel. Trying to get more active myself, trying to practice what I preach and sort of demonstrate that if I can get more active, then anyone can get more active. If you're going to cycle, do you want to turn up at work, work ready? Or do you want to, you know, do you want to risk having helmet head? If you don't have a good understanding of your values and what matters to you, it's very difficult then to stick and have a sustainable goal. From the podcast that's never pedestrian, this is Highways Voices. Highways Voices, the podcast from highwaysnews.com. So hello again, this is Paul Hutton bringing you the podcast from Highways News, your home of your daily email briefing about all you need to know in the highways and intelligent transport systems industry. And my colleague Adrian Tatum has always joined me. And uh, Adrian, when I say all you need to know, we've been working like mad already this week. Yeah, it's been busy, hasn't it? 20, 28 stories inside two days, I think it was. Really, really strong start to the week and, and lots of positive news for local authorities and road operators out there as well. So that's good. Yeah, we've been picking out stories about product launches and new installations uh, and new ideas. But what's caught your eye this week when it comes more to the policy side of things? Well, I think the big stories for me this week, three of them I've picked out. The first clean air zone outside of London launched in Bath, um, addressing ongoing air quality issues. But that will be the first of many that roll out over the next couple of years across the country and and, and probably rightly so. And, and the timing's about right, really. Local authorities have been addressing air quality issues over a number of years, trying to bring down those harmful levels of NO2 with sensors and other, other air monitoring quality systems across the local authorities. But the clean air zones are a real intention that, that they're going a step further. Also, collaboration is, is always something we like to cover on Highways News, Lancashire and Blackpool agreeing very sensibly to work cross-boundary with their maintenance regimes. And of course, the biggest story this week, the Prime Minister launching the new national bus strategy this week, promising to create a new bus revolution in the UK, simpler fares for passengers, more services in the evenings and more contactless payment schemes. They plan to deliver 4,000 new British-built electric or hydrogen buses and the transition of routes across regions and cities in the UK as well. And more importantly, um, the government says they expect to see local authorities and operators working together to deliver bus services. They're so frequent that passengers can just turn up and go. Yeah, I'm lucky that in the very small rural village I live in, we have two buses an hour Monday to Saturday, but I'd be... uh very much uh, reticent about just turning up and expecting one to appear when I want it. So um, I think that you, we can we can look towards cities first and living out in the sticks like you and I do slightly further down the line, Adrian. But uh, we're talking active travel on today's podcast in a moment as well, which of course fits into, and we'll talk about this, the idea of uh, being able to just cycle to a bus or a railway station, uh, then travel and then cycle at the other end. Can you actually take your bike on board? We'll talk about that and see how uh, how that could be sorted in the future. But yeah, we ran a story on uh, speed cameras, cycling and bus priority considered for a busy route in Coventry is one of the stories we put on this week. One other that caught my eye is 80% of people think they could react quicker than a driverless car. So just shows again, not necessarily 
that, of course, people could react quicker than a driverless car. But once again, with our industry, perception and reality are two very different things. We really do need to be getting the message across to people. One other thing I just want to flag up, Adrian, before we have our big interview of the week, is a new feature we're bringing next week on Highways Voices, which is where you're going to pick out uh, the story of the week in, uh, I wanted to call it the flattering ram, but you stymied that one so instead we're going to call it adrian's accolade yeah it's really important to recognize uh, the good work that's going on in the industry and as we've discussed before some members of the industry find it hard to communicate what they're doing well so the aim of this is to try and help them well adrian's accolade will be on next week on highways voices this week let's go on our bike highways voices with paul hutton and adrian tatum So for the last year, they've been the real buzzwords in our industry, active travel. But how do you get people who are quite sedentary to get active? Well, this week on Highways Voices, we've got experts to talk about it. Carla Jakeman is Innovation Lead Connected Transport at Innovate UK, and she has that in her remit, but is also keen to personally get more active herself. Scott Kane is owner of Active Things, a platform to help encourage active travel. And Gillian Brunton is a registered nutritionist who advises people on better lifestyles, as she puts it, hitting people's health and wellness from multiple angles. Adrian and I started by asking Carla about her professional interest. My role is very much about looking at systems around transport, not so much modes themselves. So one of the areas that I'm looking at is active travel and how we can incorporate that into other modes of transport, um, how we can incorporate it into the whole system and get more and more people being active. And what that means, especially after the government have invested two billion over the next five years. And so we're trying to unpack that at the moment. And also um, from a personal point of view, trying to get more active myself. Jill will explain a bit more about that, how we can do that. Trying to get more active myself, trying to practice what I preach and sort of demonstrate that if I can get more active, then anyone can get more active. Yeah, I can see that because I have great aspirations for cycling more and I I walk for leisure, but don't necessarily walk so much when you know in 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 normal times when I'm working so I guess the idea when we start to to travel more with work to try and take a more active lifestyle is an aspiration but I realize that you know for example we're recording this and it's pouring with rain outside I'm blowed if I'm getting on my bike or going for a walk in that and so if I were needing to travel I would default back to my car so Jilly how do we change that mindset in order to better look after ourselves and in consequence look after the environment a little bit better as well. You have to really strip back to a foundation phase and understanding yourself. If you don't have a good understanding of your values and what matters to you, it's very difficult then to stick and have a sustainable goal and work towards that goal, meet that goal. It has to be something that's really important to you. So the first thing that that resonated with me, as you said, it's raining outside, I'm blowed if I'm getting on my bike. Not everybody would think that. So somebody with the goal of actually doing some form of cycle challenge or competition would get on the bike anyway, because they know that the goal is that they want to achieve and maybe win whatever that might be. So that's important to them. 
When it comes down to general public, let's say, when they start on any form of change, it's really, really important that they can measure, first of all, but also see what is it going to reach? What are they going to obtain by doing the thing that they're doing? So for you, if the goal was that maybe, depending on your values, it was linked to raising money for charity or something, you'd probably be more likely to do it because you know that people are depending on you and you want to stay accountable. So if it was, I have to ride 30 miles a day in some form, and that's going to clock money up or points up or something for charity, you'd be way more likely to do it. So when the first step for me would be to find out about the person and what's what's really, really important to them. So why bother getting on your bike ever why not get in your car every day for everything what what would be the benefit and i presume most people would say well i want to be a bit healthier in some form or i want to look after the environment so if it's environmental and they're really passionate about that it's stripping it all the way back and understanding the facts about what the car will be doing to the environment so i think you've got to start at the very very first foundation stage when people are contemplating change to find out, well, why? Because people will say to me they want to lose weight, let's say, or they want to get off medication. Why is that important in the first place? You're chatting to Carla at the moment about her attitude to active travel. How have you approached that conversation? Why did Carla come and seek help in the first place so I won't go into her (laughs) her um, reasons and goals etc but it's understanding in the short to medium term mainly what do we want to try and achieve dopamine response is really really important to try and release these chemical feel-good reactions if you like so when we were cavemen and we weren't very good at hunting Dopamine would start releasing as we got better and better at hunting and we're closer to the prey and we're, we're almost succeeding. And it's human nature's fantastic way of keeping us on the path of something. So with Carla and with any client, it's understanding how we can set small goals so that dopamine is released as the person feels they're getting better and they're getting closer and closer to the goal. If someone comes to me and they have this massive, huge goal, which is, you know, way too far in advance or just too much to handle, you've got to chunk it right back into tiny little steps so that the person feels actually week by week, I can manage this. Yes, I'm doing that a bit with my my son at the moment. So today, for the first time, he's cycling back from school. He's not cycling to school because that would be too much in one day. Plus, it's all uphill miles uphill first thing in the morning would be a bit much but just starting that small goal of cycling back to build it up he will get such a sense of achievement from that let's bring in scott scott you have your own company active things which is a platform to help achieve active travel um so you're kind of bringing the technology aspect into that um i've got an apple watch it counts my steps it tells me how many calories i've burnt what more do i need to really get me going on this it's really practical stuff so if you were thinking about making a journey on foot say if you use something like google maps and you head towards a park in a city it will route you around the green space, 
because it it's it's the technology is based on roads and that can be really frustrating same if you're running and so it's about having the right data and the right tools to enable you to make what professor glenn lyons calls walking as a service type journey so you know how long it's going to take you know confidently how you know, you know what the kind of conditions are like to, to get there but you also want to be going through places that are a bit greener and a bit bluer and a bit more interesting with our products we we try and optimize journeys for things like that but there's also just really practical stuff like if you're going to ride your bike where can you park your bike at the other end if you've got an electric bike where can you park your electric bike and be confident that because it's parked securely it's going to be there when you go to pick it up and so uh, making that information available to people who are deciding to make active trips at the point they need it is really, really important. So what I'm hearing here is that if I worked for a local authority, for example, one of the things that I ought to be doing, you can make the information available to the end user, but you need the information coming in. So encouraging active travel needs to ensure that the information about the routes, about the uh, docking stations or the parking of bikes or where is safe and separated from the road for cycling or walking, all that sort of information needs to be bang up to date and high quality. Yeah, exactly. So for example, in um, in London, we work with Transport for London and we work with their, they have a cycling infrastructure data team and we work with their team. And it's precisely that. It's about making sure that the, the information that they have is available so that people like us who essentially have apps and other kind of tools can make that information as available as easily and as simply as possible for the person that's making the trip. That sort of stuff often gets updated in batches. So it might be six months, 12 months, 18 months old. So it's really important that that exists in a kind of open data format that can then be machine readable and usable by all sorts of different kind of innovators. It's also really about what's the practical stuff that people really want to know. So then you go back to, okay, well, what are the points of pain that people, anybody faces when they're thinking about making an active trip? And then thinking about, okay, well, how can that both, as a local authority, how can you fund that kind of stuff thoughtfully? So like you say, protected cycle lanes, for example. But then once you've done so, how can you then enable people to plan routes that then are optimised for those kind of, those changes as they're being made? Hi, it's Adrian here. Who would have thought that a year ago we would be talking about things like this in such detail? Really, so the pandemic has brought one positive thing. It's certainly about active travel. But like anything, the work that you're doing involves an element of communication to enable the public to understand that all of these tools are there for them. So what work are you doing with with local authorities and other clients that you're working with to ensure that the communication on all of this is at the level it should be? Well, a couple of examples. So let's take a bus and train company like Go Ahead to start off with. So about, well, probably two years ago now, we did a piece of work around it called The Future of Transport. And it's about essentially an active last and first mile. So how can you actively go from your, essentially your where you live to say a train station or a bus stop and how can you optimize that to be active and then how can you then at the other end do an active journey at the other end and the kind of barriers that people face are often very they're very personal you know they're the sort of things that Carla and I've talked about it's like if you're going to cycle do you want to turn up at work work ready or do you want to you know do you want to risk having helmet head you know this is the sort of thing that that, that comes through or if you want to take your bike on a bus are you able to do so and so the work that Carl has been leading around combo travel, as it's called. So basically, um, 
uh, optimizing for active journeys, so by bike and, and on foot in particular, um, in combination with one other mode of transport, is a way of making it clear to people that they can make those end-to-end -end journeys with a with a you know, at least you know a couple of parts of it being actively done, and that makes a big difference to people's confidence levels. And the more that they're aware that they can do it, as you say, with kind of public information type um, campaigns, so you know that might be like ads on buses or whatever it might be. That might be communication that they get as season ticket holders that they were, you know they receive emails and so forth from companies like Go Ahead. Um, and then if you're the local authority, I think it's more their responsibility is in part about public communications, but I think it's principally about creating the infrastructure that can give people confidence that they can make a journey uninterrupted, that's safe and feel, you know, it's well lit. It's, you know, it's protected infrastructure. And, and the, that's the, the bit that only they can do. And then people who are using it through word of mouth, tell other people about the fact that they've started doing it. And I think that's the key thing that local authorities should focus on. Are you seeing the cultural change that people are now feeling far more that they're going to use a bike or walk rather than just jump in the car because they always have? Or are you still facing the Jeremy Clarkson style attitude where tongue in cheek, he talks about cycling as adults using a children's toy? There's a brilliant Forbes writer called Carlton Reed. He's like a student of cycling over many years. And he would say, he would point to say the early 1970s, he would say there was an oil crisis. Spice, you know, cost of oil went up globally. At that point in cities like Amsterdam, they were every bit as car dominated as UK and American cities. And really interesting, you know, pick America, like probably the most car centric cities you can think of in many ways. At that time, there was exactly the same interest and boom in cycling as there was in the Netherlands. And then he documents that actually there was through a lack of supply, you know, not enough good quality bikes could be reached. And because they didn't sustain their investment in cycling infrastructure, that's the reason why it dropped off in, in countries like the UK and countries like the Netherlands. So they, in some ways, they, they did have to give up every bit as much. And what really kind of struck a, an emotional chord with people is that there was a spate of road deaths involving young people in Amsterdam and other Dutch cities, and the Dutch citizens just stood up and said, cities are not made for cars, we need to push back against this. The people were being hit in the pocket by driving, and then basically they wanted to make roads safer for people. I think here, it was every bit as confrontational then in, in the Netherlands as it is, you know, here to do with topics like low traffic neighbourhoods, which become very contentious. You know, they're almost like bikes and the new Brexit, you might say. And I think it's that thing where human nature, giving something up, giving up your right to be able to drive absolutely everywhere or being told that you you know you can drive up to a low traffic neighborhood but not through it it's something that gets people very angry and almost what you need to do as policymakers is to fund academics like professor rachel aldred at the university of westminster to to both monitor and also evaluate these impacts so it's less about you know people saying well i believe this is better or worse for people with disabilities it, it's actually Let's study that over time and let's understand what these interventions do before we make emotional reactions to them, which is kind of what's happened. People respond really positively over the arc of time, but they need the time, you know, one, two, three years to bed in before people go, oh, yeah, it's much better. The air quality is better. You can walk with your kids, you know, you do those things. And that's basically what's required is time, basically. There are a small percentage of people that thrive off change. 
I know as an individual, I really need change every couple of years, whether it's changing my work direction slightly or moving house or something. It's something that I, I really enjoy. But the majority of people, they struggle with change. I feel sometimes when things are imposed on people, it's like toddlers. They're more likely to push back. How much discussion happens in our country? Because I've actually worked when it comes to physical activity and getting children more engaged in physical activity. I worked on that project for four years in the government. I actually spoke at the um, Houses of Parliament. It's really, really difficult to get people to change when you're enforcing change. So the discussion should really happen, which is so difficult nationally to ask everybody out there, well, what do you think of these choices? If we gave you some choices, what would you tend to go for? I lived in Valencia and again, the city is completely set up for cycling. I cycled everywhere, but they are so strict in terms of safety with cycle lanes. If your car goes into a cycle lane, you're fined immediately. There's cameras everywhere. And I think that's the case in London now. But I still have this perception that if I cycle in London, it's quite dangerous with traffic and vans and everything crossing lanes. And I'm an active person. I would love to do that. I'm in Nuneaton, which is a main train line in, into Euston. It's 50 minutes on the train. I mean, who? that's a great commute for anybody. I would happily cycle to the station. It would take me about five or seven minutes, I think. But when you get to the train station, there's only a certain number of bikes that are al allowed on the train. So then if you have to cycle at the other end and you can't get your bike on, what's then my solution? So I've gone from people not really liking change and needing to be involved in discussion so it doesn't feel forced to the safety in and around and then the, the transport situation with a certain number of bikes, et cetera, allowed on. Let's look at two things that have really changed over the decades. Smoking inside. There was big kickback about smoking and people, you know, having the right to smoke where they want. But everyone's used to it now. And if you saw somebody smoking inside now, I think it would be quite a shocking thing. You'd think, oh, that's not allowed. How do we adopt the same policies and strategies so that people would be almost shocked at someone getting in their car to travel. That would be the shocking thing. For me, it would be top down and government really pushing that something should happen, not being forceful, but being totally invested. Carla, I've seen you nodding away there. I think it's about choice, really. I think there are definitely ways top down that we can incentivize to encourage people. And, and I love that analogy about smoking. I think that's, you know, that that was not really, well, it wasn't an incentive, it was a directive. But I think when it comes to choice, we need to have that information. We need to feel safe. We need to know that we can put our bike on the bus or on the train. We need to know what are the routes. If I get off, the bus at this stop is it easier for me to walk or cycle the rest of the way how many steps will I gain from doing that how many calories will I burn from doing that all of that kind of information helps us to make those informed choices and certainly with competitions we've been doing such as the geospatial commission competition which, which we run on their behalf we've got five projects from that around active travel and they're very much around using satellite technologies to create better information to create a safer environment as well as things like asset management for cycleways and pathways and things like that but it's, it's really about giving people 
that element of choice, I think. I, was say, I think there's a really interesting shift in terms of how we think about how we design places as well. So how would we design and master plan how we live and work? And as Adrian said, if there were to be some positives to come out of the pandemic, a degree more work of, of remote work for the people that are able to remote work or a bit more flexibility in terms of the time that we are able to travel or that our employers accept that we can be productive when we're not being kind of overseen. But then... Related to that is how do we then create domestic environments or where we live that are conducive to kind of short trips? And there's this fascinating idea around the 15 minute city. So it's coming out of Paris, a chap called Carlos Moreno working with Anna Hildago, the, the, the mayor. And it's the idea that how can we within 15 minutes on foot or by bike reach much of what we need in our day-to-day lives and it's a fundamental rethink about how we we plan and design places and then if you think that okay well that's not just about infrastructure that's also about services doctors and so forth how can those they they, they be reached as well then it's then about what do you need to take away to make that happen people go to center parks and they love center parks and part of the reason they love center parks their kids can just roam and run free you know whatever and then if you compare it to say how we live then you come back and actually you've got fast moving cars. So I think there's part of it is just calming the speed that vehicles move in urban areas and recognising that a car is a wonderful innovation, but it's possibly not the most perfect innovation for dense urban areas. And once you calm the traffic, then you can then encourage more people to feel safe and secure on foot by bike. Carla, safety has been in the news this week for, for all the wrong reasons. Thinking about creating places and working out how they're safe and easy to use. How do you make what we're talking about here safe? There's different elements to it, really. So there's the safety with regards to people feeling safe with regards to the news this week. You know, there's the element of people feeling safe to walk down a potentially not very well lit cycle path or walkway. So there's things that we can do there to make them better lit or cameras and things like that to make people feel more secure. But I think from from the work that we've done so far, a lot of the safety aspects are more to do with traffic on the roads. So people not feeling particularly safe in cities like Julie was talking about with with large vans and things like that and changing lanes. How can we make that easier for drivers, whether that's some kind of sensor or an indicator within their vehicle that there's cyclists around? You know, we're really looking for innovations now out there which can help make this safer. Some local authorities have talked about while implementing temporary cycle lanes, that's caused other problems. So further congestion, of course, that congestion raises the the level of harmful pollutants in a in a city that that might be trying really hard to reduce those have we got any thoughts on on the thinking behind that as well well we're going to unpack that a little bit more at the transport data initiative on active travel which we're doing on thursday we've actually got robert furness joining us and he's the deputy director for active travel at the department for transport and in a call i had with him the other day that's certainly something that he's working on at the moment Because, again, there's lots of aspects to that with regards to um, blue badge holders, for example, with the pop-up lanes. That's caused some issues for them. So it's making sure that all of the different options, short, medium and long term, are really done with consultation and a lot of information so that we can make sure that they're right for the majority. They're never going to be right for everybody. I'm pretty sure that Rupert will be unpacking that on Thursday. And the audience are predominantly local authority who attend the Transport Data Initiative event. So I'm I'm sure that they will have a lot of questions for him on there. It's really important to see these things in the round and to look at them over a you know a slightly longer period than a few weeks. I think what the 
the monitoring and evaluation work that has been done so far shows from things like Mini Hollands, which are you know embedded in over a few years in certain parts of London, like Waltham Forest, is that over time they reduce the amount of journeys that are made by vehicles versus that are made actively. The only way that we're really fundamentally going to address air quality is by reducing the amount of trips that are made in motorised vehicles. The work that came out of King's College showing that even if we go all electric in a city like London, it will still fail the WHO air quality standards because of brakes and tyres and roads. It's therefore about individuals making choices, which is actually I could walk or cycle or get a bus for that journey. If it's a full bus, you know, it's taking tens of cars off the road in doing that. And then the second thing I think is thinking about it in a joined up way is, you know, I'm sat here looking out my window near the Elephant and Castle, and I've just seen three white vans pull up, park, drop off parcels, but I've also seen two cargo bikes. The difference is that the, the three white vans have pulled up. It's about thinking, can we make a kind of system-wide shift to certain things so that the last mile deliveries and consolidation centres and so forth allow for far more of what was in-person spend that is now happening online can then be fulfilled in a way that isn't adding to air pollution, isn't adding to congested roads and so forth. That's the kind of work that in my role as an associate at the Connected Places Catapult is like, can we have a system-wide shift towards much more deliveries being made in, in a sustainable and healthy way? And then secondly, could we take some degree of pride in the way that we have pride in, say, the motor industry? So if you live around Coventry, Coventry was originally a cycling city. That's where, it's where the modern bike was invented. It's become a, a car seat. So could we have some of that brilliant advanced manufacturing and design and engineering capabilities? Could we begin to also grow a comparable, you know, world-leading capability that sits alongside our motor capability, but is also about electric bikes, e-cargo bikes, and so forth? If we feel pride in the sort of things that, as you know, essentially we're growing a market or growing our economy around these kind of things, people then begin to take pride in buying that particular thing. There's some wonderful innovations, like there's something called Analog Motion, which is a London-based e-bike company. These things are desirable. You know, you look at them and you think, I would love one of those things. You know, it's every bit as sort of exciting as a Tesla in some ways, you know, the technology that's part of them, they're a smart bike. And it's about how we can feel pride in some of those brilliant UK-based innovations, which are beginning to emerge. And the work that Carla and the Connected Places Catapult and others do is about bringing more of those to our attention and, and helping accelerate that that kind of innovation so we can all get excited about them and, and, and lust after them as much as we lust after a tesla <laughs> so much more i want to talk about about sedentary lifestyles because we're wor working from home and other little innovations that uh, companies have given like the health company that gives you a free apple watch as long as you're active with it um we'd have to hold off and continue this conversation i think later in the spring it would be really good to get everyone together again if we may and i'll go back myself a little plug for me jilly mentioned earlier about charitable things well actually i'm raising money this month or rather my dog is but she needs a human with her when she is for dementia UK. So I'll abuse my position as producer of this podcast and put a link to my fundraising page as well on there if you'd like to donate towards Alice walking 100 kilometres through the month of March. Uh, you're more than welcome as well. Uh, Scott Kane is owner of Active Things. We'll put a link on the blurb about that. We'll put a link to Jilly's work as well and to the TDI webinar that Carla mentioned. So do have a look at the blurb on the podcast page. 
page. But that's it for Highways Voices this week. I've really enjoyed this. And stop and think, where else in our industry do you get to hear something as fascinating, as educational than that in half an hour? That's why we make Highways Voices every week, to bring you something extra into the highways and ITS industries. Next week, we're talking changes in traffic and how we need to change our thinking about the way we travel and travel patterns in the future. So join us for Highways Voices again next week. For now, thanks for listening. Highways Voices. Join us again next week for more insights from those that matter in the industry. 